Hello and welcome everybody to another episode of GraphQL Radio. I'm your host, Nicholas Burke, and today I'm joined by Jake Dawkins from Major League Soccer. Hey Jake, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you? Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, it's getting really cold here in Berlin. Where are you based actually? Uh, I'm based out of New York, so yeah, we had a... That's like, pretty cold at the moment as well, I think, right? Oh yeah, we had a couple weeks ago that were just absolutely brutal. We had, you know, near blizzard weather. It was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. All right. Well, we have a couple of things that we want to talk about today. So, um, of course, we're going to uh, talk about your work at Major League Soccer. Um, and then um, you recently also uh, dig your toes um, into uh, Apollo Link State, which is a new state management solution uh, for uh, React Apollo. And uh, we're going to talk about that in the end. But um, as we like to start this podcast, um, we really want to get a feeling for uh, the guests that we have on the show and their programming background. So I'm curious here, uh, how did you get into programming, Jake? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not as exciting as, it, as, it would, as some people's stories are. Uh, I, I grew up always interested in technology, always fascinated by technology, computers in general. I got my first computer as like a hand-me-down when I was very, very young. But It, it really kind of sparked for me when I was in middle school, and for some reason, I, don't, I still don't know why, our school decided when I was in seventh grade to have a web design course for only one time, and they never offered it before or after, but they decided to teach web design to seven, you know, seventh graders. Uh, so I was okay with that. I took it. It was mostly HTML, like inline styling, but it was a lot of fun, and it was kind of like the catalyst for what you know, inspired me to learn more and more. And I kind of, you know, throughout school, throughout the rest of middle school and high school, I kind of used those skills anywhere I could. So if we had to make, you know, like a presentation for a class, instead of using PowerPoint, like most sensible people would do, I would just, you know, create a very simple website uh, and, you know, host it on like a flash drive or something. So, but then straight after high school, I went, uh, I went to college and I studied computer science. I'd pretty much known my entire life that's what I wanted to do. Uh, and I was lucky to have the opportunity to, I went to a school in South Carolina, uh, Clemson University, uh, and they had a pretty good computer science program. It was a lot of fun. I learned a lot there, uh, but I wasn't really excited about it. Um, it, was, it was mostly academic, and I didn't really enjoy the academic side of things because it had no practicality to me mm -hmm. until, I'd say, junior year, I think it was. I took a course on iOS development. At the time, it was Objective-C. Um, Kind of, kind of a really steep learning curve, but it was the first time that in a class I was actually able to kind of build things freely and build things that were useful, like, you know, that I could install on a phone and even, you know, even if it wasn't on the app store, build something useful that people could see rather than just like command line tools or, you know, printing a picture out pixel by pixel. Um, so that's where I really... That's where I really found a love for it. And pretty much beyond that, I took, you know, any kind of course I could, uh, any kind of elective course. Like I took Android development also. I took a database course that we pretty much had to build a small clone of YouTube, uh, which also involved like, you know, PHP and some front-end development as well. Uh, but yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's how I got into development is just, you know, starting off young, just having an interest in it and taking that through to college and eventually loving it. But, you know, not initially. It was kind of a, it was painful at first, but I got there. Cool. I actually had a <clears throat> really similar experience with how I got actually into programming, where um, I basically started out at university as well. But then um, I also learned Objective-C and started uh, doing apps. And that was where I really felt empowered to build something that would be useful and where I really like uh, became passionate about it. So it wasn't yeah. until I actually could apply it and build something that people could see and use until I really enjoyed programming. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's an interesting story. And so how did you then end up at Major League Soccer? Um, did you go there right after college or um, did you have a couple of steps in between? Yeah, uh, short story. I, I like to tell people that I got a job on Twitter, but that's not entirely true. Uh, <laughs> so right, right after college, I ended up uh, joining the web team uh, at, uh, at a place called New Spring Church, which may sound familiar if, you've, uh, if you remember the podcast episode with James Baxley on. Uh, he was actually there at the same time. James was uh, my boss at the time. So uh, yeah, I, I joined the team with them, uh, worked for about a year and a half, and then decided, you know, I grew up in South Carolina lived there for my entire life, went to school there, got my first job there, and I decided that it was time for a change, you know, time to move out of the state, you know, uh, ex you know, experience a little bit of life, you know. For sure. Um, but yeah, so uh, James knew Kurt and uh, my tech lead and Peggy Rezes, who's now on the Apollo team as well. Uh, he knew both of them and reached out and he knew they were hiring, so he connected me with them. He knew that, you know, they used a similar technology that um, at MLS that we used at New Spring. So it was, it was a good fit. It was, it was a very, it was a very good fit and a very like gentle, you know, job change as far as, you know, job changes go. So uh, when did you actually uh, join Major League Soccer then? In July of 2017. So this past year. Okay. Okay. I was wondering, it must have been like relatively recently, right? Because I think Peggy um, only joined uh, Apollo a couple of months ago as well. And I still yeah. remember Peggy's blog post about how um, at Major League Soccer, uh, at Major League Soccer, you guys reduced your code base by introducing Apollo, um, and you could get rid of all that Redux boilerplate. So I think that um, this must have been a really pleasant experience uh, to <laughs> um, make that switch from Redux to, uh, to using Apollo on the front end. Oh yeah, it was great. I, uh, I joined a couple weeks before Peggy left, so she was in the interview process when I joined. So I got to work with her for a little bit, but not, you know, not too long. All right. Um, and one quick question, actually. Um, since you said you're based in New York, um, how is the GraphQL community over there? The GraphQL community is really great. Kurt actually organizes GraphQL NYC with some other people, and they you know, meet monthly. And it's, it's really great. We have, we've had some great speakers come along from all over the place. Uh, Spotify, or I think it's, um, is it Travelocity? Somebody, I, th I forget who else, um, hosts, you know, hosts the events for us. But yeah, the community is great. There are a lot of people here in the city or around the city to reach out to. Um, so it's awesome. a lot of fun. Great to hear. Um, all right. And how did you first get in touch with GraphQL? <laughs> so I kind of hinted at it earlier, but uh, at New Spring, I was working with James, uh, and he obviously is very connected with GraphQL and very well informed. So when I came on to the team and whenever I started working with James, they had already been using GraphQL. Um, mm, okay. so it, it was, it was through him that I, you know, found out about it in general. And he kind of like, he kind of showed off, like started off by introducing us to GraphQL through, you know, common, common methods, like showing somebody graphical and showing how you can explore data because they already had some of their schema built out. And we, we were learning through exploring and then we used it in react through Apollo or react Apollo at the time. And then past that, I was interested in learning, you know, how it works in the server side. So he kind of slowly introduced me to the code base there. And at one point I just took over a ticket that had been abandoned for a while, you know, taking some partially written code and refactoring it and rebuilding it to, you know, fit with what we had at the time. So yeah, that's how I got introduced to GraphQL uh, was through him and just through that like gradual process. It wasn't like a all or nothing, like, you know, join and all of a sudden you have to learn everything all at once. It was, it was a pretty, pretty gentle introduction, but he's mm -hmm. also a great teacher. So it made it a lot easier. 
So, I mean, this is also a nice property of GraphQL itself, that it's really incrementally adoptable, and you don't have to move your whole stack uh, from one day to another, but you can really like introduce one, um, one API endpoint that you'll replace with a GraphQL query, and then you um, gradually continue like that. So I think yeah. that um, this is an approach that a lot of people take, actually. Um, did you have a lot of experience um, building REST APIs before, or at least working with REST APIs on the front end? I don't know. Like, you work more on the front end than on the back end side, right? Or uh, do you also do server side development? In school, I did. I did more of the back end stuff. Since then, I've done a lot more front end. So, I mean, I had a little bit of knowledge with both. I had built because because some of my professors insisted on doing things this way. I had built some REST APIs uh, using PHP, just raw PHP, no frameworks or anything, interfacing yeah. with MySQL. So, I, I I was painfully familiar with REST APIs, but not you know, not with necessarily the frameworks that make them you know easier to use and write. All right. Cool. So um, let's talk a little bit about your work uh, that you do at Major League Soccer. So actually, first of all, I'd like to be interested, um, what kind of app is it that you're building there? Is it a, a web app or a mobile app? And um, maybe roughly, what are the use cases that it covers? Sure. So right now, Major League Soccer actually has an app in the App Store. But it was one that was contracted out, and we, since, since it was contracted out, we've changed our design language a little bit, and we've changed the experience that we'd like for our users to have. So um, I, I wasn't around for this part of the process, but Kurt and Peggy, they, they were trying to push towards rebuilding the app, starting from scratch, building a team, rebuilding the app as a greenfield project, and starting from scratch. And one of the technologies that was really interesting at the time was React Native, so that's what they pitched. And they also built out a prototype, you know, to prove its validity and to prove that it's a possible technology to do some of the things we were wanting to do with it. So that's actually what we're building is we're, we're building a React Native app right now. We're using, we're using some universal components as well, and we're doing that with React Native Web. So we have, uh, we have a good bit of code in both. And, yeah, we're actually powering the apps completely through GraphQL using Apollo Client uh, and, and React Apollo 2. And yeah, that's, that's kind of what we're building. We have, right now, we have a web app. It's our, um, it's our schedule and scores page for Major League Soccer where you can go to see you know, upcoming past games, scores. Um, yeah, where you can keep up with games. And that's a little bit of an older project that they used to kind of prototype you know, GraphQL and to see you know, whether it was actually valid to begin with. Uh, mm -hmm. Because of that page, a lot of the data that we wanted to surface on it involved multiple data sources, like one tile on the page involved three data sources, you know, from stats to content. So doing that without something like GraphQL or an API gateway to begin with would have been really complicated. So that's kind of how we got to GraphQL and it's kind of naturally progressed uh, past that into, you know, using it in React Native world and rebuilding the app. Okay. And um, do you actually have like a lot of uh, real-time requirements for the app as well? Or is it only uh, like static data that you're displaying? We have, we have some real-ish real -ish time data, I would say, mm -hmm. uh, but nothing that can't be pulled on like a 60-second interval. It's mostly like game updates, like if a match is going on currently, you'd want to see scoring, you'd want to see any highlights that come across as the game is going on, uh, you know, lineup changes, stuff like that, but nothing needs to be necessarily up to the second, you know. Okay, so you're not using like GraphQL subscriptions or anything like this to actually implement real-time. If you do need it, then you use polling. Right, yeah, we're just pulling everything, and I think our interval right now is like a minute. So, I mean, yeah, it's not, it's not real-time, like, critical data. All right. 
Cool. And so I think you, you, you talked about this a little bit already, but um, can you explain more about like what was the process of introducing GraphQL into that app? Um, and like um, what was your personal experience like um, when you started working with GraphQL in that context? Yeah, so when I came on, I'll start with, I'll start with the beginning. Uh, they had the scores and schedule page, like I mentioned, built in React, and they had data on it, and they wanted to increase the experience. They wanted to make the experience better because it was more of like a, a very static, you know, kind of dead feeling page that just had like raw, you know, scores, game schedule, times, but they wanted to add in, you know, some more interactive items. Like they wanted to show if there was like a preview, like if the game hadn't started, it was in the like preview state or pre-match state. They wanted to be able to show preview articles, you know, along with the game so that you could, um, you know, click on that and read up about the game, what's expected. Uh, likewise, during the game and after the game, they wanted to show a timeline of, you know, who scored and when they scored for the game. And things like that, they had, it involved much more complicated data. So that's, that's, where the, that's where the research came in to try to figure out what the best way to accomplish it was, since there were multiple, multiple data sources. And since not only would that take like three requests to get that data, then you have that for, you know, tens or dozens of matches on a single page. So it's a lot of data that would need to be fetched. And it's a lot of work to do in the client. Mm -hmm. So that's really how GraphQL came to be relevant is that GraphQL makes, you know, makes it easier. So you could, do, you could request all the information about those matches in a single request if you wanted to on the page. And then pagination would be a little bit easier, stuff like mm -hmm. that, if you wanted to go forward or backwards. But that's how, that's how GraphQL came about in, in MLS world. And we have, and it's still this way, but it's just wrapping REST APIs that we have. We have... Mm. Um, We've, we've actually dropped one of them, but we've, you know, added another one as well. So we have um, our stats API, we have a content API, and that content API actually surfaces data from 23, I think it is, separate club sites. So each club also has a site, so we're um, actually able to, yeah, we're actually able to query data from all of the individual club sites as far as content goes. Um, and then we have, you know, user, uh, user like profile management, we have another API for that. We uh, integrate with Google Analytics. Um, so we can like pull data through there regarding, you know, what's popular, what people have been, um, viewing. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how I like the GraphQL itself evolved. And then whenever the app came along, we started, you know, rebuilding, we started building the app from scratch. It was pretty, it was pretty seamless. I mean, we had a GraphQL server up and running as far as adding data goes. We had the APIs, we had like what we needed to actually access these APIs already in place. And these APIs are very expansive and they cover pretty much all the data needs that we had. So it was very easy to just go in and drop in, you know, add schemas, add resolvers, the extra few things we needed. And since, especially at the time, we didn't have any user data to change. I mean, it was just, you know, queries, no mutations even at the beginning. It was very quick to get started. Uh, and React Apollo made it, you know, very, very simple to, you know, make queries, you know, transform them, you know, use, use whatever we need to to show uh, show the user. It was very, very seamless process. And like, um, how is your uh, the engineering process structured? Um, do you have a dedicated um, team that is only taking care of the GraphQL backend, and you have the front end team, or do you like um, is it like a full stack team where your front end guys will also help implementing the backend, uh, or how does that work? Yeah. So we have two major, or three technically, two major halves that are involved in the GraphQL, two major portions of our team. We have our, our engine team, our like services team, which is the backend team, which manages 
all kinds of stuff from our um, like deployment process and like how that is actually set up, you know, Docker, Kubernetes, that whole deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, they manage everything from that to our stats and content APIs, like as far as the rest side of things go. And in the beginning, it was mostly um, the other half of our team, which is our half of the team, which is the uh, UI side that was actually managing GraphQL to begin with. And we were just, you know, contact, like communicating with the services team as far as what we needed surfaced. And uh, they would tell us how to get to it. But I would say over the past month or two, as our data needs have gotten more complicated, mm-hmm. as uh, we need we need to find like we need to find more information, especially when it comes down to you know querying Google Analytics to see you know popular things um, across the sites and you know fetching data from multiple sites and how to how to how to do that exactly. Mm-hmm. The the services team has really jumped in and helped us out a lot. So they're actually doing more of the GraphQL server side development right now than we are. But it's kind of been a mix, you know, along the way. Okay, interesting. And um, how does your stack for GraphQL look like on the back end? Is it just a Node server with Apollo server, or um, are you using any like other technologies for it? Um, I'm trying to trying to explain this as best I can. I'm not as familiar with this, but it is a uh, it is it is using GraphQL or um, what's it called Apollo server use on that sits on top of Happy. And um, ah, happy is like your your actual uh, GraphQL or it's the actual web server, right? Yes, yeah. yeah so okay. we're using yeah we're using Node uh, on the back end, and then that's mm-hmm. just deployed through like Docker and Kubernetes. All right, cool. All right, I think that gives us uh, a pretty good insight into your work on GraphQL and Major League Soccer. Um, did you experience any like bigger roadblocks along the way? Any bigger challenges, uh, or uh, was the whole process of using GraphQL uh, relatively smooth? Um, I would say relatively smooth, with the exception of caching on the server, hmm. because we, we we serve a good bit of requests, not not like a you know. Facebook scale of requests, but we, we have a good bit of like requests that come through and we've, we've kind of tried to change up caching a few times along the way on the server. Um, and some of those things we didn't load test at the time. And that kind of came back to bite us on like our second, uh, our second most trafficked week of the year and kind of took everything down. We had to do a rollback. It was, it was kind of messy. Uh, so I, I would say relatively smooth, but <laughs> with, with some, with some like, you know, exceptions there. Okay, fair. Um, and how was um, the upgrade process from going uh, from Apollo Client 1.0 to Apollo Client 2.0? Uh, surprisingly, I mean, or unsurprisingly, depending on how you look at it, not that bad. We, we I, I jumped on it and tried experimenting with it. This, you know, first day there was actually actual beta for it, and uh, I, I don't remember what the issue was, but I had some problem uh, that I couldn't that I couldn't resolve immediately. But then like a week later, I went back and looked at it and tried it again. And for some reason, it just worked. I, I don't know. Maybe the documentation was better. Maybe I was just, you know, got lucky that time. But it really wasn't that bad. We had Apollo 1.0 in place. So 2.0 was not that bad of an update at all. It was, it was actually good for us because it allowed us to, it allowed us to use, and I think this time it was right after uh, some of the links had been published, like uh, the... Apollo error link that was published, uh, I think by James. So it allowed us to do things like if we get a GraphQL error that comes back, we can throw just a yellow box warning in GraphQL, like console.warn, which is something that we didn't previously have. So if there was a GraphQL error, we would have to like handle it at the component level to figure out that it was actually something wrong. So it made debugging a little worse for us. So actually I would say upgrading to 2.0 helped us um, 
and it, it really didn't take that long for us. So yeah, they made it modular enough and they documented it well enough that it wasn't that bad of an update. Cool. All right, and you told me before that you also had some experiences with, um, with I think, offline usage of Apollo Client with um, Apollo Link Persist, or what library is it? Would you read? No, Apollo, uh, Redux Persist, right? Or which uh, I think it's Apollo Cache Persist, I think. Apollo Cache Persist. Okay, so how does that work? Yeah, so Apollo Cache Persist, uh, especially with you know, React Native, actually works really well uh, using async storage. And what it does is it, it takes the Apollo Cache and there, there's a trigger that you can sit and wait for. So you can say, anytime you write to cache, I want to also, also persist this data. I want to also write it to async storage. Or you can say, which is what we do on backgrounds. Whenever the user leaves the app, it writes. Just you know, make sure there's no UI lag or anything in the way uh, that the user would see. But yeah, it, it works without too much configuration, without too much hassle for us. Um, yeah, Apollo Cache Persist is really cool. It's, it's new, so I don't, I don't know what kind of limitations we're going to run into, especially once we hit um, trying to get this app out into production in the next couple months. So I'm not sure what we're going to run into because we're not using it in production yet. But in dev, it's been great. OK, well, that's great to hear. OK, uh, so <clears throat> let's now talk a little bit about uh, Apollo Link State, um, since I think you have gained a little bit of experience with it. And I think that this is really a really, really nice way of doing state management on the client. Um, and it kind of um, falls into the same category of tools like uh, Redux or MobX, just tools that you're using to store locally, uh, to store data locally on the client side. Um, so um, could you explain a little bit more about what uh, Apollo Link State actually is and how to get started with it? Yeah, so <clears throat> what it is, is it is, as, as the name suggests, it's an Apollo Link. And what links do in Apollo Client 2.0 is they actually have the ability to like introspect the operation, introspect the query before you send it off to the server or as it returns. So at any point along the way, you can take a look at the operation, take a look at the response, and you can do things with it. So what it, what it, what it does is it, it, it looks for client directives. So after you request a field, you can just say at client, and it looks for those uh, client directives anywhere along in the operation and it strips them out and it redirects it to uh, it, it redirects those fields to local resolvers or to the cache. So you can actually look up things locally and they never actually touch your server. So if you don't have that field on the server, you're not going to have any problem. You're not going to get like schema errors or anything. Mm -hmm. But yeah, but it, it works especially especially well um, as a as a local store for you know especially small data sets, simple data sets as what we actually mostly use them for right now, because mm -hmm. we don't have very extensive local data needs. <coughs> but yeah, it, it sits inside of the link stack, and it handles local state like resolvers for you. OK, and how does it decide whether um, it's going to, um, to resolve that field that is annotated with the client directive, either from the cache or using a custom resolver that you provide? How is it going to make that decision? Yeah, so what, what it actually does is it, it doesn't have too much of an opinion about how you actually store the data. So Apollo Link State doesn't care necessarily where you store the data uh, or how you access the data. Mm -hmm. So what you can do is, and the way we do it and the way the documentation um, has examples to do it. And I would also like quick shout out to the documentation for this because it's really wonderful. Um, Peggy Reyes had a great post about it, went through an example of how to set it up. Um, and then uh, Sarah Vieira, she actually did a video walkthrough of a very similar setup. 
and it works really well. Um, but the way they do it is they don't actually even have local resolvers for the data. So since they're using Apollo Cache, if you have a field that you're asking for, the cache knows and the cache can find it, uh, and the cache can find the data that you're looking for, it doesn't actually even need to touch a resolver on the client side, period. It just finds it in cache and returns it to you as if any other kind of data from the cache. As far as writing to the cache goes, it's, it's a little different in that you actually do have to write the mutation and you have to write the mutation resolver locally. And the resolvers look pretty much the exact same as they look if you've written uh, any like Apollo like server resolvers. Mm -hmm. They look the exact same, which is you know, great for the familiarity. And then on, I think it's on the, um, and on one of the arguments, it actually gives you access to the Apollo cache itself. So you can just do cache.readData if you're trying to update the cache, you can read what's currently in the cache, you can mutate it any way you need to, and then you can rewrite it back to the cache. So your mutations actually work by accessing the cache directly inside the mutation. Okay, is that kind of similar to the imperative, uh, to, um, the imperative store API where you have the update function where you can also write to the cache directly? I mean, is it using the same mechanism for that? Probably, right? Yeah. Cool. Uh, how do you get started with Apollo link state in your own project? Yeah, so I mean, like the, the two things that I mentioned earlier, the video and the post, definitely I would say check out those first. But in short, all you have to do is install the link like you would install any other, any other link in React Apollo or Apollo mm -hmm. Client. And then after that, you have to go and you kind of define the shape of your local data. I mean, if, if you're planning on storing anything locally or remotely, you want to define the shape first. So you're defining what you want, the fields you want. Mm -hmm. And then you have, to create, uh, you have to create defaults for it. So defaults for the cache, you know, one the cache. And they could just be null or zero, whatever you want, really. Just go ahead and define your defaults. And that just gets written to Apollo Cache at, like, the initialization of the link. Okay. And then after that, that's when you go and actually you create your resolvers. And, um, and after you, like, create a, like, object set of resolvers similarly to the server, you just pass the defaults, you pass the resolvers back to the link initializer and just, you know, attach the link to like, your existing chain of links alongside your HTTP link or whatever else you may have. So um, we, um, we said earlier that the um, Apollo link is going to check in the cache if you have a field that has the same name that is annotated with the client directive in the query. Um, can you still write custom resolvers for queries as well? You said it's possible for mutations, but can you also still write custom resolvers for uh, queries? Is that possible? Yeah, yeah, for sure. You can you can still do that. It doesn't it doesn't really have a preference. You can still write resolvers for the individual uh, queries without any problem. It's just okay. you only don't need to if all you're doing is fetching or writing simple data. Mm -hmm. And um, do you have to actually <clears throat> put these new fields that are annotated with client? into some kind of schema, or can you just really go and use them in your GraphQL queries and Apollo link state is going to take care of the rest, or is there some kind of schema to that as well? There's not a schema for it right now, so right now it's just you know, defining things pretty much on the fly. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's something that I would like to see if there was some kind of schema or some kind of validation in the future mm -hmm. for it. Uh, but for right now, no, there's no schema, so there's, that's like, I, mean, I guess in a good way, it's, you know, less boundaries, less, you know, less in the way of getting started with it. Um, but yeah, right now, no, there's no schema for it. Interesting. Okay. And uh, from your perspective, does Apollo Link State entirely replace libraries like Redups or, um, or MobX, or is there still need for these libraries in um, bigger front-end applications? Yeah. 
That's hard to say. I, I would, I would, I don't, I don't like making generalizations about, you know, what people should use. Um, I will say that from my perspective, from major league soccer's perspective, the data that we're using on the client is very simple and it's very flat. So for us, we, we don't have very complicated data needs in the client. Most of what we're using can be fetched remotely and we don't have to worry about it on the client period. Um, so for us, yeah, absolutely. We, we have not used, um, or any other local state management, uh, on the client. We are using react Apollo entirely for everything using Apollo link state for others. I, I would, I would say, try it out. It's, it's definitely promising and it's definitely good, but I, I'm not sure if I would say it's a perfect replacement maybe yet. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, because I'm not sure exactly, you know, how you'd go about things, especially in bigger projects like, you know, testing, like whether it be, you know, unit testing or end to end or whatever you may do as far as testing. I don't know how you would test uh, Apollo Link State right now um, because you don't have as clear of access to that cache. But yeah, I think it's definitely promising. And I, I think give it some time, give it some uh, refinement. It could definitely be a replacement for it. But as for right this second, maybe is a good answer. <laughs> it depends. It depends is always the best answer. It, yeah, it depends. I don't, you know, don't, don't bet your career on this or anything. <laughs> but on, my, on my perspective, I don't bet your career on my perspective is what I'm saying, yeah. All right. And uh, so one more question I would have about Apollo Link State is what is the debugging experience like? Because I would imagine that if you're using or if you're now having all your data in Apollo client, uh, you can only use the Apollo dev tools and you don't also have to use the Redux dev tools in addition to that. So I believe it must be a fairly nice uh, debugging experience if, if that is the case and the Apollo uh, tools will actually support um, the local client state on the front end. Um, do you have any experience with debugging so far? Uh, I would say, full transparency, I haven't had too much experience with debugging on the web using Apollo Link State. Since I'm using it in a React Native perspective, I would say no. So for me, it's just a lot of console logs because um, I, I, ha I haven't gotten too deep into you know, the dev tools and what they offer. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I would be interested to know. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there is you know, good support for it there, but I, I can't say definitively yes or no. Okay, that's fair. Um, yeah, I'm just really curious about this, and I think that uh, we will uh, hear more about this in the future because this is really an exciting topic to be able to use GraphQL basically also for client-side state. And um, there certainly is a lot of opportunity to also improve the tooling and all kinds of developer workflows like debugging and testing. Uh, I'm really curious to see how that is all going to work out. Yeah, definitely. It's, it shows a lot of promise, and I love... I love the ability to use GraphQL in a lot of scenarios, especially um, the, the team that I'm on right now. We have three, uh, three engineers who are newer uh, and not having to go about teaching, you know, multiple paradigms for managing data, not having to go about teaching something like Redux or MobX and then having multiple sets of boilerplate in the client and then, you know, debugging from their perspective, trying to trace things, you know, where they're coming from, what's happening, what the state looks like at different um, points in the app. I think that's really promising, you know, just kind of reducing the boundaries as much as possible for people uh, who may be newer. Um, because I mean, they're, they're all three wonderful and they all could definitely learn. But at the same time, it's, you know, I, I, I don't want to make them learn something like that if it's not necessary. And Apollo, um, Apollo Link State for us is exactly that. It allows 
allows us to break down that extra set, you know, that extra learning curve that's not necessary for us. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it. All right. Uh, we're slowly coming to the end of the show today. Um, is there anything else you would like to talk about? Um, like anything that has come up at your work or things that you're personally interested in uh, with regards to GraphQL? Uh, can really be anything? Um, hmm. Let's see. This, for sure. I'm actually really excited about um, the possibilities for using Reason with GraphQL. It's, mm -hmm. it's still in its infancy. Uh, it's both Reason in production and Reason with GraphQL. Uh, James recently, uh, James Baxley has recently written about this a little bit uh, on Medium. He called it like exploring Reason in GraphQL. Anybody wants to look that up. That's actually something I'm really excited about because I love Reason from a like, practical standpoint, you know, type safety. Um, as well as it's just very beautiful and fun to use. So I, I don't know if it's quite ready for prime time yet, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about the possibilities for reason in the future. Um, other than that, I'm not sure. Yeah. Right. Well, if there's nothing left, then we can also move on to the picks. Um, did you bring a pick for the show today? Otherwise, uh, I can start with mine, and then you have two more minutes to think about yours. <laughs> Go for yours. All right, so um, my pick today is, again, uh, GraphQL related after I had like uh, two picks in the last two shows that weren't tech related. So now I think I'm safe to have another one that is uh, GraphQL related this time, and that is GraphQL Europe. So I really want to emphasize that we are looking for speakers at the moment. It's going to happen on June 15th in Berlin again, and we're aiming for a number like uh, five to 600 attendees, so a similar size as GraphQL Summit in San Francisco. Um, and it's going to be super exciting. It's going to be a one-day conference with two tracks. And we're definitely looking for speakers. So if you're working on something interesting uh, related to GraphQL, then definitely make sure to submit your talk. And you can also buy your tickets already. So at the moment, they are still at $199. Uh, but they'll increase over time to $299 and $399. So uh, you should make sure to buy your ticket very soon, because otherwise, you're going to pay a lot more money for them. All right, and that's it for my pick today. Uh, Jake, did you uh, come up with something in the meantime? <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I, I, I've mentioned a couple, like the, you know, the exploring reason in GraphQL that James wrote about, um, the future of state management, which is what Peggy wrote about, uh, Polylink state, uh, and also like, I would say a third pick, it's a little bit older, um, but I would recommend uh, reading, implementing GraphQL at Major League Soccer that uh, Kurt wrote, Curtis Kimple on Medium, mm -hmm. what he wrote. Uh, it, it gives a good bit of insight as far as both how and why Major League Soccer moved to GraphQL. So if anybody listening is interested in that story, especially if you're interested in, um, interested in trying to figure out whether it's good for your organization, good for your company to go to, yeah, I would definitely read up what he wrote about that um, as well as any, anything else he's written on Medium. He's, he's a very good communicator as far as what we've done. So um, yeah, those would be my picks. Fantastic. All right. Then thank you so much for coming on the show. This was actually the last episode of the first season. Uh, we'll be back soon with the second season and a lot of really nice guests uh, that we already have lined up for that. So see you th uh, then.